Section 81, first feedback and a surprise. As the demos show, the most obvious departure from the past is that menus and toolbars are all but wiped out. The focus is now on letting users specify the results they want rather than focusing on the primitive operations required to reach their goals. Jacob Nielsen, Nielsen Norman Group, User Interface Designer. We'd been working on Office 12 for almost two years, and the product had made enormous progress. The team was buzzing, and everyone was very excited. The product was different. We were building something we could all feel. It was a product that was good for individuals, not just organizations. Still, no one outside the company had seen it or knew of the monumental change we were making. The user interface in Office was not just a user interface for the PC. For many people, for the past 15 years, it had been the interface for the PC. We were quite confident. Julie Larson Green was confident and prepared. This was a big moment. The first public showing, and then the first feedback. The first lesson in user interface redesign, do not unveil the design with static pictures. The second lesson of user interface redesign, do not unveil the design with static pictures. At the 2005 Professional Developers Conference, Chris Capicella, email Chris Cap, the corporate VP of Information Worker Marketing, joined Bill G on stage for a sweeping demonstration of Windows Longhorn, along with the first public reveal of Office 12. Chris Cap and the marketing team zeroed in on the positioning better results faster, while also pointing out that Office was new but feels familiar. The demonstration zipped across Excel, Word, and PowerPoint, showing all the elements of the redesign and dozens of new features, along with many other features previously undiscoverable. I was sitting anxiously in the very back of the room, gauging how people reacted. I did not have to listen too carefully as during the demo, someone shouted out to the stage, letting everyone know how they felt. Ship it, they yelled. In the online version, there is a link to this video. We were still two months away from the first public beta, but this felt good. Only afterwards, watching the tape, did I realize we were being made fun of. Chris inadvertently, inadvertently missed a beat in the demo. His words describing what should happen did not quite match what was happening on the screen. It looked like a bug, and ship it was a classic Microsoft reference to shipping something with bugs. Nevertheless, the reception for the demo was quite positive. The excitement spread through the industry. Technorati, a tech news site that measured the important or high-impact blogs on what was then called the blogosphere, was the place to be seen in the press. Our redesign made that homepage a first for plain old office. Despite the excitement of the moment, we learned a good lesson. The video of the keynote was, keynote was posted, but in 2005, not everybody was hip to consuming video right away. That meant that the still images from trio phones and the like, screenshots from the event, and Jensen's later session made their way around the blogosphere. That proved to be a mistake. The spread of simple static screenshots for such a major change in user interface was not a way to communicate the redesign. Almost immediately, we were confronted with a wave of comments proclaiming the ribbon to be too big and that it took up too much space on the screen. Assertions made by comparing screenshots to the current version of Office and making snap judgments. Attendees at the developer conference were counting pixels, but not considering the full scope of the design or the experience. Besides, there really was the same amount of room for content. That was a key point of the design. The online version has some of the press from the PDC. We did not anticipate this level of dissection, and that was a mistake. This immediately reminded us, especially Jensen, of his redesign of Outlook and the furor over the layout. 
Recall from the previous chapter that we had a spirited debate among early testers over whether the layout displayed fewer or more email messages. The question being asked was whether the ribbon took up more space than the toolbars and menus that were previously there. We had some work to do. Lost in the comments about how big the ribbon seemed to be was the fact that we eliminated the row of menus entirely. Some comments and blogs slowly absorbed that reality over the course of the day as the magnitude of the design began to sink in. The ribbon was not, as people thought by looking at a static screenshot, a big, fat, tabbed toolbar. It was much more. Also missing from this discussion were the differences between tech enthusiast or developer use of the product and typical users. We knew the typical user interface experience from instrumentation. Most users ended up with two rows of toolbars, the main menu, plus other toolbars floating around, and the side pane, that innovation from Office XP, each obscuring the document or squeezing in on the user's work. By contrast, a very small number of tech enthusiasts prided themselves on a purposely designed and maintained very select set of commands, often in a single floating tool palette, itself a poor choice of design unless you have a big screen, which many developers did. This was not the real world or even the base case, though we would eventually craft an answer for even this hyper-customized form of user interface. In hindsight, letting the static screenshots out without video or animation was kind of a rookie move that we corrected eventually. We were at the earliest days of real-time reactions to product launches. Microsoft had recently begun using video as a means of connecting with the tech enthusiast community. The developer relationship group created an online video site called Channel 9, hosting videos with product leaders from across the company. Julie Lahr initiated the ground-level engagement as a companion to the PDC by recording a casual and friendly 40-minute discussion along with demos from her office. This video made a huge difference and began engaging the techie crowd with a good deal more information. Simultaneously, Jensen began his new blog. Blogs were the rage among product leaders. Many of us maintained, quote, external blogs, or blogs that were visible to anyone, something that seemed risky for big companies at the time. Jensen shared his first Office 12 posts after his PDC afternoon presentations. The blog was titled, Jensen Harris, an Office User Interface Blog. Portions of his blog can be found on a Microsoft site, even with a table of contents, but unfortunately, Microsoft changed platforms and all the images have been lost. Individual posts can still be found on archive.org with the images. There's a link in the online version. Jensen had many talents beyond his obvious software skills and his regular performances with the Seattle Symphony. He was also a fantastic writer, a style honed while writing with a column with USA Today for a column in high school. His posts detailing the Office 12 redesign were not only incredibly well executed, but ultimately served as a model for how a product could and should engage discussions on building software at scale. Through the course of the remainder of the release, and even today, these posts serve as reference materials for one of the most substantial redesigns Microsoft ever undertook, so far. While obvious today, the press and reviewers were also following the post carefully, something we took note of and proactively communicated with them. We never edited, cleared, or otherwise scripted the post. Jensen did this all on his own and under his own supervision, with the goal of detailing why we're changing the UI, not just how we're changing it. Incidentally, this became another story of an office process spreading virally across the company. 
I was often asked to point to the team in marketing that was doing our blogging and to the blogging strategy deck. It was one of those moments when I recognized parts of the company were scaling or growing, growing up differently than an office. In other parts of the company, something like a blog would be a separate team, a budget, a process with meetings, and so on. We had none of that. It was just Jensen and other members of the team writing. We'd occasionally talk about topics to cover, but otherwise it was an entirely organic and trusted effort. The key was that there was no strategy or oversight or overthinking, but just telling the actual story of the design and responding to the legitimate questions about it. Nevertheless, Gavin Shearer, email Gavin S, on the product planning team, wrote up a blogging white paper so the rest of the company asking could see what we had done and had some structure to it. Gavin met with several of the team's bloggers to see how they worked and turned that into a guide for the future. It makes for an interesting historical record contrasting with today's carefully crafted and managed communications. It served as a foundation for how we would later manage the larger task of writing about Windows. More on that soon. The online version has some of that blogging strategy white paper. Among Jensen's first posts about the ribbon were pixel-by-pixel -pixel discussions of the size of the ribbon, even discussing alternatives that had been suggested in other comments and articles. In a post entitled Mythbusters, the TV show of the same name was popular at the time, he helped readers to see why the ribbon was far more than a fat toolbar, or why the layout we chose of the most commonly used commands rather than commands from certain categories. For each of the main areas of innovation of the design, Jensen walked through in detail the design in a calm and factual tone, along with humor and colorful, though sometimes embarrassing, comparisons from past releases of Office. The posts were wildly popular and served as a model for much of the future blogs our team would author. The online version has a screenshot from the first blog showing the fat toolbar. Two months from the PDC to the technical beta went by quickly. A good deal of the product work was needed, but time flew by because of the incredible interest in what we were cooking up. Fairly low-key beta tests were the norm and only moderately interesting in general. Suddenly, techies clamored for access to the release, which we limited because of our own views of quality and our inability to support full-time usage of the product. We got some early instrumentation on usage, and that started to confirm much of what we hypothesized with respect to the design noting that these early users were intentionally trying out many parts of Office they might not routinely use. Those who got hold of the beta were clearly exercising a lot of the product and trying it out. It had been a long time since there was so much excitement about a pre-release version of Office. In November, we released the technical beta, which was open to developers, some enterprise customers, and the Microsoft MVP community, the most valued professionals, who played a key role in the beta process of the Office 12 redesign. Most enterprise customers, though, didn't tend to pick up these early technical releases for evaluation. Who are these MVPs? We were briefly introduced to this group of supporters when they initiated something of a protest against the new Visual Basic.net, referring to it as Visual Fred because of the lack of relationship and compatibility with their much-loved Visual Basic. As we'll see, compatibility and respect for the past are super important to MVPs who pride themselves on deep knowledge of Microsoft products and its history. The MVPs are an elite selection of consultants, educators, writers, and generally independent thinkers who are deeply committed to Microsoft products. Each of the major products has a group of MVPs from around the world assigned to it, with the MVP program itself managed by a central corporate team. 
Becoming an MVP involves a rigorous nomination and selection process, along with reapplication when the term is up. MVPs take great pride in their role and commit significant effort and often their livelihood to Microsoft products. It is such a big deal that most readily identify their MVP status in email signatures, resumes, business cards, and today on LinkedIn profiles. The MVPs are super important to the product once it's released. Many books, training videos, and courses on products are created by MVPs. Many command large audiences online and are key creators of how-to content in many forms. While the program is centrally administered, including a yearly MVP conference, the product groups each have people assigned to serve as liaisons to their MVPs. Over the years, the office MVPs had grown a little anxious in that they generally felt they did not receive enough insider information on planned features and ship dates. My sessions with the MVPs sometimes had a bit of an edge because I did not use the forum as the first or earliest disclosure or events. There was frequently some tension between the promises made by managers of the MVP program and the product groups like Office and how they positioned the program relative to disclosure and influence on products. Office was perhaps unique in designing for a broad audience of many stakeholders. The most engaged MVPs were sort of like the close-knit IT managers in the Windows Server team, who were, they were excellent at managing with their risk relative to their IT-focused disclosure and business model. I was always a bit cautious of over-indexing on one specific customer segment, especially when we knew they were a deviation or two from a typical user. One of the more challenging aspects of Office was how everyone tends to believe their use is widely represented of others, even software professionals who work on behalf of other users, they know this tendency, but sometimes have trouble resisting the temptation to represent themselves. I wanted to find a way to address this gap while also recognizing the responsibility to enterprise sales and our customers. Regardless of the forum, I never wanted to be in the position of overpromising with a risk of under-delivering. I strongly believe that sharing was committing and failing to deliver to customers came with a high cost. Before the November beta at the yearly gathering of MVPs in Redmond, we had a special session planned for the 50 or so Office and SharePoint MVPs. They were invited, but did not know why it was special. After Jensen did a never before seen talk on the ribbon, I walked to the front of the large meeting room and sat on the ledge of the stage that was raised. There's a feature in Office that I wanna let everyone know about that they've been asking for for as long as I could remember, I said. It was a feature all of our competitors provided, and some even claim to be using as a huge advantage over Office. I continued, available in the public beta in a few weeks, Office 12 would provide full support for saving files in Adobe PDF. We simply called this Save as PDF, exactly what everyone called it, no matter what we named it. The room went crazy. After Jensen did a never-before-seen talk on the ribbon, I walked to the front of the large meeting room and sat on the ledge of the raised stage. There's a feature in Office that everyone has wanted forever and has been asking about for as long as I could remember, I said. It was a feature all of our competitors provided, and some even claimed it to be a huge advantage over Office. I continued, available in the public beta in a few weeks, Office 12 would provide full support for saving files in Adobe's PDF format. We simply called this save as PDF, exactly what everyone would have called it, no matter what we named it. The room went crazy. 
I hopped up on the stage and showed a click-through demo of the feature working exactly as expected. PDF was another file format option in the Save As flow. I showed PDF in Publisher, Visio, and Word. The online version has a photo of me taken by an MVP, as well as a demo of the Save As PDF capability. In today's context, this sounds supremely dumb. How could our best and most informed users get so excited over PDF? Today, PDF is an utter commodity. Everyone uses PDF, and no one thinks for a moment if it costs extra. Companies from DocuSign to Google and every institution from banks to hospitals and every government create PDFs and enable their customers to create PDF. Every browser supports PDF. Every tool creates PDF. But in 2005, Microsoft alone was not in the PDF business. Yet the whole world was using PDF to, with Microsoft tools. It was a big deal, and the world was kind of a silly place. I then shared that this work was done by the publisher team, and they took on the work to implement it in all of the Office applications. At the time, it was a remarkable maze or thicket of legal and regulatory challenges, a feature that our competitors supported that utilized an open and published standard, and that was an entirely obvious customer need. We were receiving more than 30,000 comments per week on our own Office website requesting PDF support. The code was only half the battle at best. Would regulators view PDF as anti-competitive? Would implementing PDF in Office and not charging money for it be predatory pricing? What would Adobe think or even do? Would there be intellectual property challenges? It was these last concerns that kept us awake. Like a patent dispute claimed on Office got very expensive very quickly. Adobe invented PDF more than a decade earlier. Recall that when I was working for Bill G as his technical assistant, the idea of creating viewable files was a key initiative passed on from my predecessor. Even before PDF, Bill G did not want anything to do with a file format that could not be edited, and still did not, resisting save as PDF. Adobe distributed a free PDF viewer on every computing platform, but to create PDF required a license except on Steve Jobs' next operating system where it was built in, and thus eventually on Macintosh and iPhone. Over time, however, as the internet made PDF more useful and widespread, Adobe got pressure, especially from Europe, to make it possible for third parties to create PDF legally for free. This was already happening, but technically such work risked violating the PDF license or intellectual property. Adobe, perhaps a bit too clever for its own good, published an open specification in a European standards body. We built our feature using only the open specification in a metaphorical clean room. Adobe was extremely concerned by our support, even though we relied exclusively on their open specification. Except we were Microsoft. Even our largest and soon-to-be most evil competitors, Google and our main office competitor, Sun, were using PDF to compete with us. In fact, the only way to print a document created with Writely, the browser-based word processor that would be acquired by Google, would be by outputting it to PDF, which they announced shortly after this event. OpenOffice created PDF by the simple save as command. It was the peak period of fear and the assumption that everything we did had potential for an evil twist. And as such, the legal team was predisposed to capitulate to any regulatory skepticism by simply not shipping a feature. In fact, Save as PDF was a completely benign and customer-driven feature, but in the climate, our motives were always questioned. 
Eric Anderson, email Eric and, our fantastic head lawyer for office. Alan Yates, email Alan Y in marketing, and many others spent weeks briefing regulators, trade press, industry groups, standards bodies, and more, laying the groundwork for the feature. Perhaps the biggest lesson from the regulatory era was that a company in a dominant position can't always do the things that are perfectly acceptable with a lesser market position. We were so worried that something might backfire in the antitrust or patent worlds that we designed the feature so we could easily remove it with a small online update or reissue all of Office without this feature. If any party chose to litigate, it would not do so until after Office was commercially available in order to maximize the inconvenience for us and the damages owed to them. Still, nothing is ever easy. And suddenly, all those working hard to create or use our expanding XML file format were concerned and were sending, that we were sending a mixed signal to the market. XML was intended to support some of the scenarios PDF could, at least technically and in theory. The program managers working on XML authored a series of clarifying emails to be shared with the field on this topic. Under the hood, a key initiative for Office 12 were the new XML-based file formats, the X in DOCX, PPTX, XLSX. These formats would eventually be published as open standards as well, a fact we used to deflect any potential conspiracy theories regarding our use of PDF. One other wrinkle was that the Longhorn team was doing its own PDF competitor called XPS. Of course, the X stood for XML in XML paper specification. We use the same code path we created for PDF to also support XPS. Peter Pathé, email blue, the VP leading the effort, let the Windows team know we would support XPS, which they had previously pleaded with us to do. They were very excited to hear the news, but their excitement was considerably tempered by our additional support for PDF. Supporting both reinforced our claim as Office that we were trying to help customers by including multiple technologies. We prepared an enormous package of briefing materials for the press, all for a single feature. We had a whole media plan, Q&A with me on Microsoft's main website, a long set of rude, frequently asked questions, especially over the Longhorn XPS format, even a draft email to send to influential press and partners. It was a production. The online version has a binder of PDF materials. Save as PDF was so popular that it quickly became part of a standard demo workflow, a feature that exported a document out of Office, not into Office. We got the feature done, and it was done well. We supported all the key features of PDF, such as accessibility, fonts, images, and more. Never had we done something so obvious and yet so difficult to release to market. The fact that the lightly resourced publisher team delivered PDF was a special bonus for the team. And development manager Ben Ross, email Ben R, did an amazing job. PDF support through the work of people on the publisher team like Sheree Elkham, email Sheree E in test, and test manager Tamarian Rogers also furthered the, our efforts in accessibility and worldwide government standards. We received emails extolling the virtues of Save as PDF from dozens of MVPs. It was so rare in a business hour scale to deliver something so immediately positive without cynicism or skepticism. The most elite members of the press, from Walt Mossberg at the Wall Street Journal and Michael Miller at PC Magazine, reached out to congratulate or mostly to thank us for adding support. PDF was crucially important to their workflows, and this just made their lives simpler. It is weird to think, 
but a feature that seems so dumb today was easily the most friction-free and joyous addition to a product I think I ever did. Except maybe for the widget that counted compiled lines in Visual C++ that made everyone think the product was faster. Peter Pathé, the VP of Word and Publisher overseeing the work, was equally happily, especially considering his own personal history in typography and publishing technologies, not to mention studying at the MIT Media Lab during the heyday of eBooks. A few weeks after the MVP conference, the Office Technical Beta was released. The MVPs received a lot of attention and were anxious and ready and also feeling good about the insider scoop they received. This would be a first time anyone would have had their hands on the code to use day in and day out, and the product was really ready for that. Once the beta went out, we immediately began monitoring the private news groups using the old NNTP protocol that the MVPs used to talk to each other. These new groups were the closed door and NDA forum for the MVPs to meet and part of what they valued most about the program. The product groups were on the hook to monitor the dialogue and respond to issues. The beta proved to be the source of many emotional and heated discussions. The good news that these were discussions were mostly the arguments we'd heard following the PDC. The MVPs were a slightly different crowd than PDC developers. They were dedicating their careers to Office, and they had a lot to discuss. Almost immediately, we were again confronted with the feedback that the ribbon took up too much of the screen. They were sending us screenshots of their highly customized Office, carefully removing much of the default user interface and relying heavily on keyboard shortcuts. To such a setup, the ribbon was huge and wrong. Some showed us their dual monitor setups or how they arranged windows for multiple documents on the screen and tiny columns. That didn't really work well for the ribbon. Others had widescreens and sent us their proposed renderings of what the ribbon would look like oriented vertically on the screen, quote, to save screen real estate. We recognized many of these were personal preferences. We knew we were making a major change and major changes that did undid, not, that undid knowledge of the most knowledgeable power users and almost always received significant feedback for doing that. Through the course of this writing, I've shared several such stories, such as the introduction of the new setup technology in Office 2000. We filled our replies to the comments with data from our telemetry and how Office customers use the product, the screens they had, the number of toolbars and task panes that were routinely visible, and so on. At each juncture, the discussions devolved to a point that we were asked for options, Options to move something around, options to hide something, options to be able to change something. This was a normal reaction to change. Essentially, those resistant to change don't really battle the change as much as just request the ability to not experience it, to turn it off and go back to the old way. Articulating that the redesign was a programmed user interface like the cockpit of a plane, not a set of parts to be assembled, was our challenge essentially rethinking the ancient design point of a customization-centric product. We changed the whole model and made it much more productive. And in a real sense, we moved moving the customer base, not only the hardcore technical users, to a higher level of expertise and mastery. We did this, very, we did this the very same way the graphical interface itself made software easier, by improving the abstractions. The graphical interface technology of pull-down menus with a mouse replaced arcane and seemingly arbitrary keyboard shortcuts of the early character interface. The ribbon replaced the user interface that essentially mapped every feature directly to an implementation and the constant document debugging and futzing with a higher level of set of abstractions that regular people could understand.
The online version has an article by Jacob Nielsen called Rest in Peace or Rip WYSIWYG. There was one raucous private news group debate that came to symbolize the challenges of the thesis of operating at a higher level, and even of the ribbon itself. It started when one of the MVPs posted a message ranting, <coughs> sorry, raising the feedback about, quote, sub-second keyboard access. The post explained that the reason the ribbon wasn't satisfactory was because it required the mouse, and that what was needed was sub-second keyboard access to every command. MVPs often customized Office to provide unique and highly tuned access to commands. With the ribbon, this level of tuning was not yet possible. The MVP simply stated, advanced users have got, emphasis in original, to have convenient, that is, sub-second keyboard access to all dialog boxes and many common commands. Without that capability, Excel 11 will never be uninstalled because using it will be so much more efficient than using Office 12. As it challenging, actually annoying, as the comment could be interpreted, I resisted the temptation to immediately dive into the debate, as I was often impatient with this type of comment or threat from insiders. I'd forget to remind myself that while we had debated these very points for the past 18 months, the MVP was seeing everything for the very first time. Instead, I commiserated down the hall with Billy Sue Chaffins, email Billy SC, one of the key program managers on Julie's UEX team, reporting to Jensen H. Billy Sue moved over to UEX from Jeff Olin's web services team, the Office website, where she was hired in the middle of the Office XP project. Like many, but not all by any stretch, program managers, she was a trained computer scientist, having put herself through school after moving from rural Kentucky, where she was born and raised. Unlike most program managers, Billy Sue was also a teacher, having been a university lecturer of computer science before heading to Microsoft. As a key member of the UEX PM team, she was in a perfect spot to drive engagement with the MVPs who were extremely interested in the ribbon. Billy Sue kept an eye out for hot issues and made sure the team was handling the traffic. The online version has a screenshot of the sub-second uh, dialogue that we had. The sub-second keyboard access feedback stumped us. Once when I stopped by her office, we looked at each other trying to understand what that could possibly mean because no one could type and execute commands that quickly. She knew debating the premise of this question would be futile. When forum participants smelled a weakness, a pylon followed. Suddenly, everyone needed sub-second keyboard access. Billy Sue drafted one of many responses on the thread and eventually provided enough data on usage, customization, and more to at least explain why the design worked. The larger point she made was how the design committed to provided full keyboard access to all commands without having to customize the product to do so. In fact, part of the innovation of the ribbon was to make sure everything was accessible directly via the keyboard. In addition, she pointed out that existing keyboard shortcuts remain compatible and customizable. This thread gave Billy Sue an opportunity to acknowledge the feedback and commit to improvements. We already planned on having full keyboard access, we just didn't have it in the technical beta. For every sub-second post, though, however, there were many threads not only defending the ribbon and, and, and its experience, but calling it brilliant. Some of the more entertaining, if not parochial comments, asked if the Office team might go over and help out the Vista team. More on that later. The online version has some of that beta feedback. Customization continued to be a topic in the news groups, simply because the MVPs were the people who customized the product the most. The data we offered showed how few people customize, 
or how often customization happened by accident and couldn't even be undone. But there was no telling this to Anne or the audience of customizers. Experts always wanted customization options, but options have an enormously high cost in the short term and the long term that impact customers as much as Microsoft. This is especially true when it comes to customization of the user interface, something we were freshly experienced as we were working through how to fully support the customizations that developers had become used to using when they created custom applications hosted within Office. What doesn't make the product too complex today will certainly make the product more complex tomorrow when the combinatorics of all the various customizations begin to conflict with each other. What always seems like a simple preference or switch turns into a testing and compatibility matrix from hell. We were in the earliest days of the design of what we thought of as a customization escape valve, a place for those strongly committed to customization or frankly, where the usage model was so far from typical. The Quick Access Toolbar, QAT, was a row of buttons that could be turned into any command from anywhere in the product. The MVPs could have full customization control over this feature. I admit to forcing an expansion concept of the QAT on the team for the power user customization scenario. It was kind of ugly and broke the model, but it was also a lifesaver with a specific set of customers. The brilliance of how the team designed the original QAT was how minimal the impact was on the overall model and ribbon design. The online version contains a screenshot of the QAT. The QAT is a tiny row of buttons at the top left of the title bar, at least through Office 2021. Had buttons for save, the classic disk icon, undo, the back arrow, and redo, the forward arrow. The QAT was originally meant to have the very top used commands always accessible regardless of what part of the ribbon was visible. We were so worried about how dumb it might look for save of all things not to be visible since it was from the very first toolbar that we placed it in the QAT. Much to the disappointment of HP, Hewlett Packard, printing began its slow decline in the early 2000s and given telemetry, it was not on the QAT. Surprisingly, None of the participants so well-versed in history drew the analogy to a feature in Macintosh Word from the old days called the Work Menu, which was precisely the same idea, a menu that could be customized to contain any command in the system. Sometimes what is very old becomes new again, and is even better when its reemergence goes unnoticed. In the very early days of Excel, a command called Set Print Area was moved off the file menu, and it immediately jumped to the top of customer support calls, Today, this command is mostly automatic, but is readily available in the ribbon. Fast forward to 2007. Julie and I were invited to join with a Harvard Business School executive education session being taught a case study on the design of the user interface in Office. Students were asked to prepare their notes for class using brand new Office 2007, which none of them had yet been using given the pace of corporate deployments. As soon as class started, a student slash executive raised their hand and asked Julie, hey, how do I print? As the rest of the class groaned in support. The omission of the print button on the initial QIT might have been a big oversight on the entire project. It was certainly an embarrassing moment for Julie and I. The beta was solid enough that thousands were using it every day, and it was clear for more of the product was getting used, quality was high, and we were on a path to finish. This, however, was the technical enthusiast audience. 
Our next step was a broad release, including the core business users, specifically IT managers who generally didn't react well to change and could be very vocal about it. The press and reviewers would also be testing out Office 12, and most of them used Word and Excel for hours every day. 